Welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. There's been a narrative for quite some time about campus buildings and amenities. You know, lazy rivers, climbing walls, fancy cafeterias, the whole nine yards. I could talk a lot about the amenities boom on the athletic side of campus. Athlete villages, gated communities built just for revenue-producing athletes. But today I wanted to focus on the other side of campus, the building of districts surrounding campus and the strategies to pay for them. My guest today was the co-author of a fascinating article in the Chronicle of Higher Education called The Heavy Cost of an Empty Campus. Karen Fisher, along with Lindsay Ellis, wrote, In 2014, investing in international student recruitment seemed like a good bet. The number of them coming to the United States was increasing at a never-before-seen pace, with enrollments passing 1 million students a year. Nearly three in four of those students chose doctoral granting institutions like the University of Kansas, a member of the Elite Association of American Universities, or the AAU. Kansas's goal was ambitious. It hoped to double its international student population, which then stood at about 2,200. The university hired an outside company to recruit students from around the globe and invested in programming to provide them with cultural immersion and to improve their English skills. Administrators also hope that a sweeping campus renovation, including a state-of-the-art science building, modern student apartments, and a new student union, would boost the university's appeal. The two efforts, in fact, were mutually dependent. College officials were counting on international students to help fund the central district as the multi-million dollar construction project was known. They would borrow to erect the buildings and use foreign student revenues to pay their creditors, unquote. Then the pandemic hit, and combined with the Trump administration's emphasis on limiting immigration, the number of international students attending top universities has now dropped precipitously. Student revenue, revenue frequently tied to the students being physically present on campus, is what keeps the lights on. My guest today is Karen Fisher. She is a senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education. She covers international education, the globalization of higher education, colleges and the economy and she is the chronicle's chief international correspondent karen welcome to the podcast thanks for having me so the article that i referenced in the open has a subtitle decades of disinvestment left public research universities overexposed to COVID 19. walk us through your reporting for this wonderful article Sure. I mean, the the reporting on it actually started last summer, um, and it was spurred by by a tweet, um, as sometimes uh, good stories are, um, by a professor of education at the University of Wilmington, Kevin McClure, and he started tweet. He had this long Twitter thread about kind of tying um, tying COVID back to privatization. And it kind of got first my editor and then uh, my partner on this project, uh, Lindsay Ellis and I, thinking about how in some ways COVID-19 was kind of the same old story, really, that some of these real shifts that had been kind of bedeviling um, higher education, particularly public higher education for years, um, was, was again what was happening during COVID, that it really in some ways tied tied back to these challenges that colleges have felt as they've come to rely more and more on student tuition and how that is driving these choices. And so one of the things we really wanted to do was look at 
how were colleges constrained even at the beginning of the pandemic and and how did they sort of have to make kind of their choices in this box because all these other decisions that they had made in previous years made it impossible for them to make some other choices hmm, interesting so going back let's go back and look at the decisions that many governors made back in 2012 as part of the uh the uh pushback if you will towards spending and and the governor of kansas sam brownback like many other governors decided to cut back dr dramatically on higher education funding talk a little bit about that where that left kansas and other states um i mean kansas is certainly an extreme example um brownback uh, was or is i i don't think he's changed his mind an inherent of of Arthur Laffer really believed in the notion of supply side economics. That is, if you cut spending um, and gave taxpayers back the money that would incentivize businesses to spend more. And thus, even if you'd cut spending, you'd actually bring in more revenue into the, the tax coffers. And um, so he made these huge cuts, but in some ways, um, and certainly other governors um, made cuts, although Kansas, again, kind of just is kind of like the exemplar for this. And it was so bad that Republican controlled state legislature actually went and undid some, some of the cuts later on down the road, but they did not until they'd already had um, quite a, an impact. But in some ways the, the, tax, um, the tax example is kind of emblematic of what sort of the challenges that colleges face um, in, in states, which is to say that there are always these other choices that the governors, that legislators, that the taxpayers themselves, the public are weighing. Um, is it, do you want to cut taxes because either, you know, like Brownback, you, you believe it's gonna incentivize spending, or maybe you're just in a, a person who believes fundamentally that, that people, the public should keep more, more of their paycheck and so you're anti-tax. And so that's a choice you're making. And if you do that, then you can't spend money on colleges. Uh, if you spend money on K through 12, which is mandated um, in, many, in most states, that's money that you can't spend on higher education. Prisons, Medicaid, um, uh, you know, uh, building roads and infrastructure, all these things are the things that, um, that are frequently getting weighed. And when push comes to sub, historically what's happened is that higher education is, is one of the few of these, these sort of these, these parts of state government that has this other um, sort of revenue stream, mm -hmm. which is student tuition. And so you've seen again and again and again, colleges make this, or rather states make this choice to, to not spend as much money on higher education because they're, they've put that, that money someplace else. And then this all became just a massive problem during this last year of the pandemic. And they were, yeah, and they were coming out of the Great Recession and we don't wanna pick on Kansas, but your article lists a number of schools like Miami University of Ohio, that is, you know, around 70% dependent on tuition. And these were uh, Carnegie classified schools, I think that, that your article looked at. So these are high research focused institutions. We typically talk about tuition dependent when we're talking about private schools. And yet your, your article really looked at this change in the public school dynamic that we traditionally think of as being state related or state supported. And yet in this situation, higher education got the short end of the stick. 
yeah, we we do typically think of, of private colleges or um, regional publics as being tuition dependent. But the fact is that in more than half the states now, students pay and their families pay more than half the bill. And in a few states, they pay more than 70% of the bill. And so they, they're, they're just become a, a really major revenue source. Um, and you mentioned the Great Recession. We've just not really ever come back um, from that. I mean, this this dynamic of, of shifting towards um, a reliance on student tuition began back in the 80s, frankly, but it just got hypercharged with recession and we, we've never really recovered. And I mean, when, to, to arrive at the, the institutions we did put our focus on, I mean, we actually pulled data. And so we were looking at things like um, tuition dependence, um, growth in out-of-state students, all these sort of dynamic, these components of um, privatization. And that's kind of what led um, led some of our uh, reporting and the focus of, of our work. So one of the things that you talked about was this, um, you know, it's, a, it's an overused term, but I'm going to use an arms race that university campuses feel like they need to have in order to attract and retain students. And Kansas started building some extra kinds of things. Walk us through what they were building. Sure. I mean, Kansas, um, in some ways, was was faced with some real infrastructure challenges. They were not getting money for capital improvements um, from the state. They had a real backlog. Um, and But they also wanted to build some um, more state-of-the-art um, things. So not just buildings, but much nicer apartment style housing, for example, a nicer student center, things like that. Um, and so th when they were confronted with this, they said, how can we do this? We're not going to get money from the state. Um, so they, they had to borrow. And I think that's increasingly what we've seen is um, colleges look for more sort of creative financing options um, to do this. And as you say, I mean, a lot, a lot of the reason that, that colleges point to for um, entering into these kinds of financial arrangements is if they don't do that, they will be lost, they will lose out, you know, that students are choosing between other institutions when they go to college, um, and particularly students, out of state students or in Kansas's case, international students are, are choosing and they're looking at the, the amenities that, that other institutions have. And so, you know, sometimes, I mean, we, we talk about climbing walls and lazy rivers, but often it's just more comfortable on-campus housing that these colleges are after. Um, but they feel like if, if they don't do this, if they don't spend, then they won't attract these, these students who can pay. And so it, it becomes this kind of never-ending cycle. So you're dependent already on students who, who pay the tuition up to 70, 74, 75%, but you need them to come. And so if they don't come, then either you, you up your amenities or you get into a discounting kind of war, a war where you're trying to give more merit aid. Um, the COVID-19 hit Kansas and the students didn't come. Let's, let's talk about what that meant when all of a sudden you can't fill those beds that you've set up with a public-private partnership or people aren't dining in the, in the restaurants that they've built alongside the campus because the students were sent home. What does that mean? I mean, so campus has got a little bit of a taste of this um, last spring. 
when you know they had to to close down abruptly and a, a lot of um campuses got were pressure were under pressure at that point to give some sort of um rebate um back um and they were losing money because a lot of the times um because often the, these public these these ways of financing public private partnerships is what they called or p3s are often not done for for academic buildings they're often done for 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 other buildings on campus um, residence halls uh, parking garages things that um, you you know states are not as willing to spend money on and so these things are then often tied to the revenue the revenues generated by the buildings themselves so if you don't have people whether it's students whether it's alumni for football games coming and parking in your parking garage you have no parking fees well then you don't have the revenue stream to pay for the parking garage and to pay off that debt if your students don't show up and sleep in the residence halls then you don't have that funding stream. If they're not coming in and using their meal plans and eating the dining halls, how are you gonna pay for, for those facilities? How are you gonna pay those workers? And so the, it became this, this sort of cycle. And I mean, um, you see some of the, the credit rating agencies um, uh, cautioning that um, colleges could be in, in a real jam if they, they can't get this revenue because they they have taken on increasing amounts of debt um, recently. But in the irony being right now during the pandemic, in fact, there's likely to be more borrowing because um, the cost of borrowing remains low and where else are colleges going to turn? And so we're still in the middle of, of this cycle. I find that kind of interesting because yes, it doesn't cost much to borrow right now but still Moody's and others are downgrading their, their outlook from uh, stable to negative or you know, to, to lowering the bond rating, if you will. And so <clears throat> that makes me think about when, when a school's in a situation like most schools were with COVID where you had some students on campus or it was fits and starts who was on campus, who was off, are, are schools then responsible for helping these public-private partnerships pay the debt, does it come back to them? Or does it come to the private part of the partnership to pay it? Or do they both do it? Um, I mean, there, there's different ways that they are structured, but um, the the private partner is is often, which is often actually just a nonprofit arm of, of the institution itself. They're borrowing the money, uh, but there's the agreement is that the, the college is going to pay off that that debt. And so whether it's, you know, whether it's technically speaking that the private partners paying the debt and the college is paying the partner through, say, sometimes they will guarantee, for example, a certain occupancy rate in the dormitories so that the, the private partner then knows it's going to get, you know, X number of dollars in um, housing fees. Um, you know, they, they are they're on the, I think the bottom line is colleges are on the hook for this money and they've got to, to find out how to pay for it. And there, I think one of the challenges that they face is that oftentimes explicitly, they're not supposed to be using taxpayer funding for this. And so they, they've got to, and you know, do they want to take tuition? I mean, maybe they're still getting tuition, for example, if students aren't on campus, but are taking online courses, but do you, you want to put your student tuition dollars towards debt service? No, yeah. Not so much. 
Yeah, it's it's a great question. I and I certainly saw it here in Philadelphia with empty empty residence halls, empty off-campus apartments, and I was like, well, it's it's costing them money just to keep them warm, you know, in the winter to keep the the power on, so you've got it when you need it. I mean, and there's no revenues coming in, so it's not at all surprising that schools would lose, you know, fifteen percent of their revenues off the top just because the students haven't been on campus, right? <clears throat> Yeah, and you saw that. I mean, it, a lot of the, the colleges we looked at um, when um, college leaders were communicating with faculty about planning for, for the fall, they, they, were, they were saying quite bluntly sometimes, look, if we don't get the student, we need to get the students back because it's essential for, for our financial viability. Um, one of the people, I mean, Lindsay and I also talked with dozens of um, higher education experts to kind of um, form the basis so we could even start kind of asking good questions and looking at, um, you know, looking at the right kind of aspects of this. And, and one, one person said to me that um, if you, you looked at a lot of the processes that institutions went through in deciding whether to reopen, that he, he, he characterized it as sometimes the choice wasn't really whether to be reopened, but how to get there, how to get to reopening. Like the, the, it was always like, how can we get students back? And that was kind of the end, the end goal because of well, necessity. Yeah, and, and you quoted Kevin McClure, an associate professor at UNC Wilmington, uh, whose tweet you originally got you thinking about us, yeah. said, um, what you see with COVID is what happens when you build a model, an academic model around the presence of students, around the presence of students as consumers. And this struck me as one of, as one of the really key parts of your, of your pieces that we need, um, in order to make this model work, we have to treat the students as consuming goods on our campuses so that we get some of the revenues. Is that a fair, fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this has been the shift of, you know, hired as a public good to a private one focused on the individual consumer. And so um, what do you do to to make that consumer happy, to make them satisfied, to to make them want to consume or purchase the product that you're selling, which is in this case, education. But it's also that whole student experience. And when you look at a lot of reopening um, statements, um, one thing you'll see is a lot of co um, college presidents saying, we're going back because this is what our students want, that they don't feel like they're going to get the quote unquote college experience sitting at their laptop in their parents' basement, that they want to come back and not just get the, the classroom experience, but the whole experience, which, you know, is these amenities that we've been talking about. It's, it's often college athletics, um, you know, and it's the co-curricular. And so how can we, um, to give these consumers what they want, if, and, and you can debate sometimes about how, um, how presidents arrived at this. I mean, certainly given the choice, I don't think students generally speaking said that they wanted to be, you know, taking online classes. Um, but, you know, 
they were was was were they actually demanding it or was this the sort of sense that we built up over years about the, the consumer experience at the center of what college is did that is that the thing that then led college presence just innately sort of be driven by um by trying to reach this end goal for the students it's a, it's a great point and i think that post-COVID-19, we're looking at campuses where we still don't know what our enrollment's gonna look like for fall of 2021. Uh, of course, community colleges have been devastated by the pandemic uh, in terms of enrollment. Other enrollments have been you know, fluctuating in anywhere from three to maybe 10% loss on campuses. But the value proposition is what I hear parents talking about. And they don't wanna pay full freight for Zoom classes. But also if they come back to campus, then it puts tremendous pressure on the campus to deliver everything all at once. It's not really phasing in. Like athletics plays a really key role in setting the tone that we're back. This, we're all back here. You can come back and have fun. Um, did you see a role for athletics in, in any of your piece about how what kind of tone it set in trying to get students to come back? Um. I mean, I think whether it was about getting students to come back specifically, I think there, there was a lot of pressure to bring athletics back. And certainly you, you saw that. I mean, there are a number of, you know, football conferences, for example, that uh, that never canceled and two that did, the, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 ended up reversing their choices and, um, and playing. Um, their seasons were, were were short and they canceled a lot of games because of outbreaks on teams. I mean, the New York Times has done some great um, work looking at how college sports were real hotbeds of COVID outbreaks on yeah. campuses. Yeah. Um, but I think that they were driven to do that for a couple of reasons. Um, one is this student consumer experience. I mean, um, you know, at the University of Oregon, which was another institution we looked at, I mean, they 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 know that um, whether or not it's the deciding factor for 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 students quite often um, the familiarity particularly for students who might be out of state yeah. um, they they become familiar with these these colleges because they see them you know playing football on TV on the weekends and so it's kind of you know the front door into the institution and it's something that not just students but alumni as well you know it builds support for the institution um you know so it attracts students to pay tuition it attracts alumni who give dollars and um, donations um so there's this whole ecosystem and then the other thing is that college sports is at or certain college sports football basketball the money-making sports they're they make big money i mean you know the big 10 pulled in you know what 780 million dollars from television revenues and apparel and other kinds of, of merchandising and so um so they i think that the sports um question was both related to the students as consumers but also related to these questions of privatization in in so much as it's a revenue, it's another revenue stream. And maybe it's not subsidizing other things to the universities, but it's it's allowing sports to happen in general. I mean, we know that football subsidizes and basketball subsidizes most of the other sports on college campuses. And so I think there were the incentives pointed in the direction to want to play sports this past fall. 
and spring. Yeah, and also just creating normalcy, right? Uh, everything's yeah. gone here, nothing to, nothing to look at because we're still playing football. Well, I mean, I, you know, the president of Ohio State said that, you know, she said every time she got on, you know, she was doing a lot of Zoom meetings with students. And one of the things that they all said, she said every single call, they said to her, thank you for playing sports because, you know, at least on that Saturday afternoon, that's the one thing that, that feels like normal to us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, boy, that's a whole fascinating line. I could go down for hours, but I want to stay on this on this topic of these uh, public-private partnerships and also alternative revenue ideas. One of the things that you mentioned was that what the University of South Carolina did, which was they just said, you know what, from 2012 until 2020 or 2021, we're just going to add more students. We're just going to try to grow our campus size. What did your research show? Has that been successful or did that suffer from the same problems that other schools did with no students on campus? It, 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 it's very much the same problem, um, particularly because almost always, with the exception of a few um, high growth states, um, the, the, the institutions that, that follow this, this strategy, and certainly not all do, I mean, there, there certainly are institutions that say, look, we're, we're gonna bank on our prestige. Um, and we're going to be very um, exclusive, and that's you know that's going to be to our benefit. But institutions like South Carolina said, "Look, we're not getting the revenue from the state. If we want to actually get better and become a better institution, then we've got to attract more students to pay for the labs and the the research funding, and you know more professors and better professors, and and so." Their, their bet was to, to attract more students and, and they wanted to attract a specific student, that is students from out of state. So either out of state or international students. And to do those things that then you get back into these same questions that we've just been talking about because now you've got to, you've got to convince a student who is a consumer to come from another place and pay more money yeah. to do it. And so what are you offering then? you're gonna to have to say, there's something about this experience that's better. We've got the best football team, or we have this great tradition on, on you know, at basketball games, uh, you know, and it, it, we build such school spirit. We, we've got the nicest, you know, amenities and dormitories, you know, we, you know, the, 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 our professors are the best. So you have, you again, get into this sort of, sort of catering to the, the student as consumer and how, how do you do that? Because, because the, I guess what, the, one, the one thing I would just say is that the challenge is, and the reason they've got to grow bigger is because the one thing you can't do, especially if you're a public institution and say, oh, we're going to take in a lot of students from, you know, California or China at the expense of our, our individual students, even if they're not going to pay, they're not giving you as much money and, and support and state support, legislatures are not, not going to stand for you pushing out your local students to take in, in of these other students. And so therefore you've, you've got, to, got to grow. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I had an earlier podcast uh, last year with um, a research group that looked at the University of Alabama and how they had upended their recruiting strategy for students uh, with that very strategy you just talked about, out of state, high achieving students, giving them a lot of merit aid to come down to, um, uh, to Tuscaloosa. And, um, and, but the, the key was, is they were pushing out in-state students to try to track the, the difference financially with the out-of-state students. But one of the draws was come see Alabama play football. 
come be part of the stadium and the stadium experience. So I wonder if other schools aren't, aren't trying to replicate that same model with, you know, saying, let's just recruit more kids from out of our states. But you're right, it's a balance with the state legislatures. It really is. I mean, a lot of them are. I mean, Oregon is, it was, I mean, that, you know, one was not, not the only um, goal, but it was certainly one of them. I mean, can, Kansas was banking on not out of state students, but international students to help, right. you know, fund some of its buildings. In. And we lost a lot of international students in the last four years because it just was harder to get into the U.S. to come, to come study. Yeah, I mean, it's been, um, the numbers have, have had been booming, but they have been softening. And now, um, I mean, the, the pandemic, no, no group has, has um, declined as precipitously um, as international students because they simply can't, can't get, get here. And I think, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, I think one of the real sort of nail biters is what's going to happen next year. And are those students going to, to, to be able to get here? And, and if they can, are they going to still want to come? Yeah, absolutely. Since we're um, talking about Kansas, I had to bring up what just happened at, at the University of Kansas and conversely, what is also going on at Kansas State. Kansas State just had their athletics department bond rating downgraded from stable to ne negative because they're trying to keep up in the arms race with everybody else. They're trying to build new facilities. So in the middle of trying to be go from the doormat up to maybe the middle of the pack, they're also finding their other, other options for getting money are gonna be harder to get and maybe cost more because their borrowing rating isn't so good. Also, <laughs> in the last couple of days, um, Kansas has decided to let their football coach go and pay him well over a million dollars to go away. And then they just let their athletic director go. So these um, kinds of typical, I put that in air quotes, typical expenses that we take, you know, we take for granted every year in athletics that come out are coming on top of all of this other stuff, all these other pressures that are happening on Kansas's campus. Uh, you know, Karen, you've been studying this for a long time. You're an excellent writer and understander of, uh, from an objective point of view about where these kinds of schools go at this point. But what do you think, where do you think we're headed in 2022 and beyond? And what if the students don't come back? I mean, I think it's going to be really, a really difficult, um, not just year, but it's going to be a difficult next couple of years. I mean, you look at Kansas and at, since, since the time that Lindsay and I wrote our story, um, the state has told um, the University of Kansas is going to cut its budget by $75 million. Um, they're talking about eliminating departments. They're talk the, the Board of Regents there has given them the authority to fire tenured professors. Um, they're, in, they're in really, really bad shape. Um, and there just doesn't seem like, what's the, the escape valve here? Um, you know, state budgets are hurting. I mean, I think one of the things we'll, we'll be looking at, and, and I know in fact, some of my colleagues already are looking at is, you know, does some of this, this most recent round of COVID relief, does that help reduce some of the tensions? And I'm not even talking about the money that goes directly to, to colleges so much as, you know, what is the money that goes to states due to the, the really shaky situation of many, many state budgets. Um, but I think unfortunately, there's nothing that's going to break this cycle, and if anything, it's going. There's the dependency has increased because there isn't any other sort of outlet, and so you know colleges are 
going to need to to try to get students back on campus and to try to get their tuition dollars and I mean I think I mean it's only March I mean they, just think about it this time last year we're the colleges were just closing campuses but already um, there have been a lot of announced uh, a lot of institutions announcing that they're going to be reopening and in person in the fall and and I mean I think that there's a lot of um, pressure on college presidents to you know, especially now that we've got a vaccine to be optimistic and um, to, to send that er that message early to students. So now when they're making, the, especially the, the incoming students, when they're making their choices this spring, um, you know, they're getting this message that you, you can have that college experience you want, come to come to my institution because yeah, that's yeah. what you're going to get. And, and then you've got all the all the competing demands of well, how much student debt can I take on? Do I really want to um, separate myself out for four years from the workforce? Maybe I want to go to school part-time and take some classes over uh, over the internet and some classes in person. I, I see this whole next generation evolving into wanting multiple choices, not just the choice of come to campus or they don't, but they're going to want multiple choices, which costs schools money to create those opportunities. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been an interesting um, sort of outbreak of this. I mean, it, outgrowth of, the, of this is it has, in fact, um, particularly in the delivery of, um, of, of courses, it, it is, we've seen this just under pressure, a lot of innovation. Um, and so the question is going to be, you know, do we go back to normal or is it going to be this new normal where you it's not just either or but it's yes and yes do what you used to do but also take some of this stuff that you've you've, you've developed in this last you know pandemic year and and apply that too and i think one of the things that you know a number of um studies have suggested is that while students may um actually depending on the kinds of courses and depending on their the students themselves they may be more open to um, to taking some of their courses online, at least when we're talking about um, traditional age college students, a lot of them still do want that campus experience. You know, they are maybe buying, you know, what colleges are selling when they're talking about, you know, this, the experience that happens, the full college experience that happens outside the classroom. And so I think there, there's also pressure from the consumer to, to, to have that back for the fall. Yeah. Yeah, we got to be able to throw the Frisbee on the quad. That's really important. <laughs> well, Karen, thank you so much for your time today and helping us <clears throat> understand this unique opportunity, this moment where students and consumers and how institutions react to trying to keep consumers spending in their ecosystems. I really appreciate it. Thanks, it was fun, Karen. <laughs>